0: Your attention, please. This is required listening information for all KUCI 88.9 FM radio frequency and KUCI.org broadband recipients. Weekly Signals with Mike Kaspar and Nathan Callahan, a one-hour irreverent reality-based mashup of contemporary events, commentary, and interviews, broadcasts every Tuesday beginning at 8 a.m. sharp. You may choose to listen to Weekly Signals Weekly Review, Seymour Hirsch, Garrison Keillor, Terry Jones, and Ariana Huffington, to name a few, and online at weeklysignals.com or live during the weekly signals tuesday morning 8 a.m. time slot however you choose your listening is required again that's KUCI weekly signals tuesdays 8 a.m. and so on
1: the opinions
2: and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI its management or the UC board of regents
1: To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and live audio streaming at KUCI.org. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer. And you can find out more about our great guests on this show if you go to org slash privacy piracy. If you don't know our host, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's Mari Frank. She's a local attorney and privacy consultant. She's the author of several books, including her own Her two new books, Safeguard Your Identity, and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She's testified many times in the California legislature and the U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special that they air from time to time. She's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows. To learn more, please visit www.identitytheft.org. So let's get started, Mari.
0: Yes, and you know, they can also go to KUCI.org slash privacy piracy to see all of our past wonderful guests, listen to interviews, listen to the podcast, and see our future guests. And let me tell you, we've got a great guest tonight. I am thrilled. I've had the opportunity to go and read a couple of his books, and uh, I'm excited. We have somebody all the way from New Hampshire. Can you believe the other side of the country? Let me tell you about Burton Hirsch, who happens to be an author and an expert on the CIA. Burton Hirsch has a long history of being a a great writer. Following a six-year stint as a Fulbright scholar and military uh, translator in Germany, he returned to New York in the 60s to to have more than a decade of uh, successful writing for a magazine article writer. And then he became a prolific author. He's received many literary awards, and he spent many years of research, which gave him great insight into the American society, privacy issues, uh, the CIA secrecy, and all sorts of stuff. Let me tell you some of his previous books. He wrote The Shadow President, Ted Kennedy in Opposition. That was back in 1997. Um, the Old Boys, The American Elite and the Origins of the CIA. We're going to talk about that one. That was in 2001, but he's done an update of it, and he's expanded it. So that's the one that I think is really fascinating. Uh, the Mellon Family, A Fortune in History. That was written, written in 1978, uh, the, and that actually won the Book of the Month Club. With fortune book club the edward the education of edward kennedy back in 1972 and um that was a book find club and so the ski people in mcgraw hill 1968 and then he has a novel the nature of the beast which is about a cia agent it's a you know a fantasy but really tells about what really happens in the cia so um, I just wanted to tell you, you know, uh, Daniel Shore, who is a senior political analyst for NPR, says, Burton Hirsch has brought to life the dark and secret world of American intelligence in its formulative years. It is a breathtaking, comprehensive piece of research and a miracle of lucid writing. So you can learn more about that at treefarmbooks.com. Hey, are you there, Bert?
2: I'm here, Mary.
0: Oh, thank you so much for joining us. We sure appreciate it and uh, we're all excited to learn lots about the CIA. That uh ha- tell me, you've done so much research about the CIA. How is it that you happened to get involved in, in interested in spying and all this history?
2: Well, I had some I had a bit of a history in military intelligence when I was myself a soldier in Germany. So I had some idea how this game worked, and I thought it would be a good idea to think about writing about it. And uh, I, I was very interested when when uh, William Casey became the CIA director in 1981. That he picked a guy named Max Hugel as his uh, director of operations. Hugel was a sort of an international bit player in the business world, but he and, and done very well in, in, in any number of, of private enterprise, but he had no intelligence history that I could tell, and I knew that would be resisted within the intelligence community. And so I got, I got interested enough to arrange to do a piece for the Washingtonian on the whole situation. After that, I got to know uh, Bobby Inman, who was the deputy director of the CIA, and he ushered me into some of the other uh, uh, less frequented corners of the intelligence community. And with that, I thought, well, maybe I ought to think about a book. And from then on, I was largely doomed.
0: It, it had a life of its own, right?
2: It certainly did, <laughs> yeah.
0: So, that you know, that's kind of a secret uh, organization. So how much access did the CIA and the government give you when you were trying to write this book?
2: Well, you know, the CIA, oddly enough, has got a PR wing. It's got people who handle the general public and journalists especially. And so I called him up and said, I'm thinking about doing a book or originally a magazine piece about, about what you guys are up to, and I'd appreciate all the help I could get. So I wound up going out to Langley, where the headquarters were well-established by then, and talking to some people there. And they, in turn, referred me some other people, some of whom were retirees, some of whom were still active in the agency, who, uh, in turn, handed me on to other people. By then, I'd, I'd done a pretty good job of reading background material. I'd read most of the important books on the agency of that during that period so i at least had a sense of what to ask and what to be looking for so things one thing led to another one person led to another.
0: Wow. So how did you get these uh, intelligence veterans to talk to you? Like weren't they scared they that somebody would come and kill them or something?
2: <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, you know, I mean most retirees will will tell you everything they know if you'll only sit still and listen to them. <laughs> and this is no less true of the of the professional intelligence uh, people. Most of them. Here and there I ran into somebody who gave me problems, but I was able to win over key figures in the agency, uh, people like uh, Richard Helms, who had been the, himself the director and, and a highly respected director for many years. And, and when once I did that, uh, and I began to ask about a particular situations, he'd say, "Well, I—that's something I don't know everything about. But you ought to talk to X, who handled it in Germany for us, or or Y, who did the analytics side." And pretty soon, one person handed me to another, and after a while, they all lost track of what I knew and what I didn't know. It's, At that point, I joined the Association of Former Intelligence Officers and began to show up at their annual jamboree in in, in Virginia. So, uh, you know, with that, I I had access to the uh, uh, cocktail parties and and social events, and pretty soon people forgot that I wasn't an agency veteran. (laughs) So you I kind of played, in other words, I penetrated the agency. So Whatever. you
0: kind of played identity theft as an agent. You became a CIA agent yourself. <laughs>
2: yeah, I, having joined yeah. the Association of Former Intelligence Officers, I became an active member and ultimately went on the board of directors of the New England chapter. So I get, got to be a familiar face, and people weren't quite sure whether it was a good idea to be talking to me, and by, after a couple of drinks, they didn't care. That's, that's the that awful was, truth. That was
0: smart. So most of your research was done at these cocktail parties after a bunch of drinks, huh? Well, not most of it, but
2: uh, <laughs> certainly doors opened and people told me you ought to talk to somebody else who knows. And, yeah. and I, you know, I made some friends. Some of them are, became lifelong friends.
0: That's wonderful. So, what you know, this is something a lot of people don't know—the original name of the CIA and what its mission was, and which president started it. That's a real history in itself.
2: Yeah, it was the the CIA. Really, I mean, one of the one of the reasons when The Old Boys was published, it originally was published about um, ninety two, I think. the The uh, Scribner version came out, and um, there was a, there was a lot of hesitation on various grounds about whether all this. Information ought to be out there. Certain people who were active in the agency or had been active called one another and said, "Can you find something wrong with this book so that we can discredit it?" And it, it, it you know, it had a bumpy trip uh, over the hurdles with the critics, some of whom either felt I was talking out of school or what I said couldn't possibly be true. Ultimately, it was pretty much all all vindicated. Nobody ever found mistakes. I could have pointed out a few if I'd been asked. And it became a standard work. Pretty the the CIA itself. Made it mandatory reading for its young officers, and they use it to uh, vet confidential documents and things like that.
3: Wow! But
2: in those days, it was the, the 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 problem I had was that the central point of the book was simply that the CIA, like the OSS before it, which had developed during wartime under Franklin Roosevelt's auspices.
0: Now, tell tell what those uh, initials stand for, because people don't know.
2: <clears throat> well, OSS stands for the Office of Strategic Services. And that was uh, created in effect by by a guy named Wild Bill Donovan, who was a Wall Street lawyer with a lot of connections that went all the way back to the uh, Second World War, I mean the First World War. And uh, uh, at the encouragement of William Stevenson, who was the British Secret Service representative in Washington during that period, <clears throat> I think the Brits wanted us to take up some of the weight of uh, of the intelligence responsibilities. And So, uh, uh well, Donovan we... Donovan knew a lot of people, and so he he used his acquaintanceship. It, what, what really developed then and afterwards, in the early CIA, was that the the um, the CIA, the OSS, and then the CIA, as I said in my book, became a kind of collection agency for the big American corporations. If they were having trouble, uh, they put pressure on the president or directly, and got the, the CIA involved in overturning uh, countries where there was threat of nationalization of resources or. Or where the uh, political atmosphere was uh, unwelcoming to these corporations, and this connection between American, the big American interests, corporative interests, and the uh, uh, American intelligence community, was not something that anybody really in that world wanted to see out there in print. So my book was much attached for pointing that out. I didn't attack this. I thought this was a reasonable and and predictable use of government capacities. But a lot of people felt that I was a a mad socialist who was trying to downgrade the agency that wasn't true,
0: huh, so the impetus really was the economy
2: yeah, speak. and all 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 these all these big early operations you know the especially the paramilitary operations came straight out of uh special interest when the United Fruit Company found that its uh assets were being rolled up and 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 uh taken over by uh, a new government in in uh, Guatemala. They put a bee in the bonnet of people in the government in general, and the CIA in particular. And pretty soon a revolution took place, which returned these assets to the United Fruit Company, which was an old uh, client of the Dulles brothers, uh, especially John Foster Dulles, had, had put the whole deal together during the 30s. So that was the kind of thing I found. found the same thing was true in Iran, for example, and, and many other places.
0: So when when they look at us in terms of other countries looking at us as being imperialistic, you know they're not all wrong according to what your your book is pretty much well, saying. Well, okay.
2: I mean the same can be said of the British Secret Service, you know, right? The, right. Uh, trade follows the flag, and and the secret services follow trade.
0: Yeah, yeah. So who was the first president really to establish the beginnings of the of the CIA?
2: Well, the CIA itself came into existence in 1947 when Harry Truman got tired of being waked at night at the White House by alarmists who had just discovered something and wanted to know whether there was anything to it. He wanted a kind of clearinghouse for intelligence, and he himself had <clears throat> had trashed the the old OSS. He didn't like Donovan very much, and he felt Donovan Donovan wanted to take too much power and work too too uh, questionably behind the scenes. So. Uh, in September of 1945, he, he, he dissolved the, the old OSS Office of Strategic Service. And so for two years, what functions uh, Donovan had developed, either in, on the in, analytic and intelligence side or on the operative side, uh, were taken up by either the Department of Defense or, or the or, Department of the Army in those days, or the State Department. But this wasn't adequate. They needed a coordinating operation, and so the CIA came into existence as, as part of the National Security Act of 1947, which also created the Department of Defense, among other things.
0: Huh. interesting. So so who were some of these founding fathers, and and what were they like?
2: Well, wh- one of the people who was behind the scenes all along was Alan Dulles, who was a, a, a partner in Sullivan and Cromwell, the kid brother of, of John Foster Dulles, who was the you know the the uh, standard bearer for starchy Republican politics of the period, uh, who became Secretary of State under under Dwight Eisenhower, and uh, uh, Allen, who was always uh, in his brother's shadow, really, hmm. um, was very interested in, in 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 the emigre groups, the the right wing groups that had drifted over here after the communists took over Eastern Europe, and he felt that they could be developed. There was something called the Vlasov Army, which was perhaps a million uh, dispossessed right wing. Uh, Eastern Europeans, and the thought was that they could be trained up and kept together, and and, and 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 become the spearhead for what was then called rollback, the effort to reconquer the old Soviet area. And so this, the, all this was simmering, and the O and the the early CIA was very involved in this. They made various attempts to take over uh, a number of countries, uh, uh, subvert them, and they they were very unsuccessful because the communists were very good at, at sniffing out these things and crushing them.
0: You know what I thought was interesting is a lot of these early founding fathers really, they weren't law enforcement people, right? They they came out of business, right? Yeah,
2: they were lawyers and investment bankers, and, they, they, and they, they, they loved the game, but they didn't like the work much so that the early CIA, despite the reputation that the right wing now tends to give it as having been very effective, wasn't really very effective. These guys uh, did most of what they did through proxies, through other people's uh, intelligence services or through sort of uh, odds and ends that they picked up around the world to do their, their work for them. It wasn't a very big organization, and it it was very, you know, it was, the, the old OSS was often, people would say that that, that, that those letters stood for oh-so-social. Yes. And, and, and people felt the CIA wasn't much better. Professionals uh, in the uh, intelligence business, like J. Edgar Hoover, felt the early CIA was actually pretty contemptible and ineffective. Hmm. And there was a great fight between the FBI and the CIA, which which continues at, at 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 a certain level to this day.
0: You know, the FBI I think of is is really they they're educated but they're law enforcement i mean that's how i think of them you know, they are, that's you know right. what i mean whereas the cia is really not like that what's it like today in the cia they're not law enforcement although they're doing law enforcement basically some of them right
2: well they try not they're not supposed to do law enforcement they they're, they're supposed to be spies and they're supposed right. to find out what, what's going on out there in the world and the fbi is supposed to stick to uh, the united states and not Reach out beyond, but there's always been some overlap. Even during the Second World War, the FBI had, you know, had had uh, operatives in in uh, any number of foreign capitals, especially in South America. And after the war, uh, that system was expanded, uh, the so-called legal attaché system of the FBI. I've just finished a book called Bobby and Edgar on Robert Kennedy and J. Edgar Hoover. So. I'm fairly up to date on the FBI. Yeah.
0: So what what is the name of your new book?
2: It's going to be called Bobby and Edgar. Oh,
0: Bobby and Edgar. Very cute. Let me ask you something. So, um, like today, if you want to... Let's say we have students here on the campus at the University of California, and of course people driving by that are maybe sick of their job, What what do you have to have to join the CIA? You have to be college educated. What do they want today? Do you know
2: the CIA has been actively looking because they've been increasing in size. They they were cut back uh, about twenty percent during the Clinton era, and that may be one reason that Al Qaeda got a grip the way it did. And there's Hmm. they're often uh, the the government (laughs) is often attacked for that the Clinton administration for having cut back our security and international espionage systems, but. Uh, they, they, they they're they're obviously looking for well trained people who are quick on their feet who particularly who have language abilities if they if they they know Arabic if they know Russian or Chinese if they know the you know Urdu or the languages of the of Southeast Asia they they've got a much better shot it's a much more professional operation than it was during the era of the old boys when. Uh, You know, uh, coupon clippers tended to drift into the organization. People who got tired of the law and wanted an exciting life but didn't want to stick their neck out. That tended to be the types of the period of the old boys that I write about.
0: Hmm. You know, I I noticed that you talked about the CIA in the late 1950s. They they really started to skirt the law and lie to Congress and, and pretty much defy constitutional constraints. Tell us about that.
2: Well, that became the pattern, and, and and every time somebody in Congress would would approach them, or they they get called before a committee, Alan Dulles would say, "What we're doing is protecting the integrity of the American homeland, and we you don't want to know what we're doing; it would it would uh, uh, complicate your life and implicate you." So they pretty much bluffed their way through for many years. There there was a uh, Eisenhower got fairly tired of Alan Dulles, and and he had uh, 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 David Bruce and. And Robert Lovett, who were two prominent figures in diplomacy and and in lovett's case in in banking, uh, take a good look at the CIA and they concluded that these guys were largely ineffectual and were you know causing all kinds of problems around the world that didn't that we didn 't need to live with and That report was suppressed, but it was very interesting. I remember uh, uh, Arthur Schlesinger had a copy and gave it to me and, it, 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 that's, it's that's in the old boys, of course. Right. It suggested even during the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of hesitancy about the mischief these people were making.
0: Wow. What influence did, you know, you talked about the Nazi influence. What influence did the Nazis have on the CIA, and what was their relationship with some of these uh, good old boys?
2: Well, you know, people like, like Donovan had illegal uh, uh, friends, uh, people of influence who were part of, of the Nazi establishment, and then at the Dulles brothers, particularly, were very—they handled affairs for the American commercial community in Germany to a considerable extent. They had offices in both Hamburg and Berlin. Sullivan and Cromwell was the name of that firm, same firm which uh, uh, produced the Panama Canal. They had a long history in that firm of manipulating around the world, and uh, so the 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 Dulles brothers. Uh, had been involved in throughout the 20s and 30s in the floating of German bonds in this country to pay off uh, German war debts and so forth, uh, which Hitler repudiated. And uh, many of the senior figures in German industry and even in the Nazi party were very close friends of the Dulles. For example, Hjalmar Schacht, who put the uh, German the whole German economy together for Hitler, uh, was was a very close friend of both brothers, especially of Allen. There's some wonderful letters back and forth and, in the Mud Library in Princeton. And they did everything they could to protect these people. They were close to the, the, the people who were at the top of the uh, uh, Gay farben uh, network, which produced uh, uh, most of the German munitions. And Allen himself uh, tried to pick up the pieces right after the war, uh, through proxies and 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 make a lot of money. So there was a always a connection between this kind of espionage and self-interest and, and and the great commercial entities of the period.
0: Wow. You also talked about Alan Dulles um who destroyed the career of the head of the United States Army intelligence rather than his, you know admit that he was dealing with the with Germany. So tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, that was was sort of an interesting story. I I talked to the man who was head of G2, as it was called, in the Army, Arthur Trudeau, before he died, and he told me the whole story. Um, It happened that we were dependent for most, about 95% of the information we had on the East Bloc and on Russia on an organization which originally had been a Nazi organization, the Galen Group, uh, which which, uh, ran German intelligence at that point. Uh, They were subsidized and set up by us. And Galen, although Galen himself was probably pro-Western, he was a, uh, you know, a kind of a, an old Catholic Junker. Um, the people around him were a very dubious character. And the guy who was head of counterintelligence, which is a very key figure in any intelligence organization, that they vet the people, make sure that that the enemy doesn't get into your organization, steal your secrets. A guy named Heinz Felfa, had been approached by the the he he'd been in the in, in the SS had a long history as a as a as a, as a middle-level Nazi. And and he then was approached by the KGB and bought off. And most of the information that we got on the East Bloc and on the Soviet Union for about 15 years came through what, what uh, Galen's organization was called the Bundesnachrichtendienst. And that organization was thoroughly penetrated by the Russians. So they were feeding us what they wanted us to know. And uh, the uh, uh, CIA of the period was putting the rubber stamp of... Of 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 accuracy on it, so that explains some of the colossal failures of of intelligence during that period.
0: Wow! I just want to introduce you again. We're speaking with Burton Hirsch, who is a wonderful author, and we're talking about um, his book that he's just kind of updated and expanded that he had written previously about the history of the CIA. It's called. The Old Boys, the American Elite, and the Origins of the CIA. And as, as we know, when we study history, it sure tells us a lot about what we should be thinking about for the future to avoid the pitfalls and also what to do to improve. So it's a, it's a great book, and we've got Burton here. Burton, let me ask you another question. You know, you, you talked about the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. And what was going on behind the scenes uh, between the CIA and the State Department at that time?
2: Well, that was a very dangerous situation. I mean, if you you remember, the Hungarians revolted in good part because they were being stirred up by our uh, propagandizing radio stations, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, uh, some of which were being run by genuine Hungarian patriots and some of which, uh, represented the sort of the old right wing in Hungary, the old landowning classes. Uh, and they kept telling the Hungarians that if they would revolt from the Russians, we would support And They had that, those Vlasov divisions, which were in readiness and all kinds of things. And the, uh, the Russians finally did revolt in 1956. And uh, uh, it got so close. I, I remember Robert Amory, who was the head of the analytic side of the, CIA at that point. There are two sides, the analysis side and the operations side. Uh, Told me that, showed me documents, I've got them in my files, in which he recommended to Eisenhower that if the Russians moved on Hungary at that point during the Revolution, that we should drop atomic bombs on the passes of the Urals. Ooh. You know, that <laughs> that for sure would have triggered World War III. Oh,
0: my gosh. And
2: fortunately, Eisenhower, who was a seasoned uh, military man with a lot of common sense, right. realized the CIA was trying to drive him in a dire- the direction of, of national suicide and, and, and refused to do any of these things. Yeah, he 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 was increasingly dubious about the judgment of Alan Bellis by then, anyhow. Wow. So, uh, World War III was averted then, as indeed it was uh, a few years later during the the, the uh, missile crisis, by the judgment of the people at the top.
0: Let's talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis. H- how did Alan Dulles and the CIA con Kennedy and John F. Kennedy into underwriting the Bay of Pigs anyway?
2: Well, that's something I've been looking at a lot recently because Robert Kennedy was right in the middle of a lot of that
0: stuff. Right, right. And
2: so I, in order to do a, a you know a fully competent history of his relations to the government and, and to the FBI and other organizations, <clears throat> I had to take a, a very strong look at that. Um, I think basically what happened was that the plan that had been evolved within the CIA, which Eisenhower had not signed off on, but was, a, was interested in, to <clears throat> bring down Castro. Remember the last months of the Eisenhower administration, Eisen, Eisenhower's uh, CIA people had approached various gangsters and, and hired them in effect to shoot, or ins- one way or another, to assassinate Castro. So that was hovering in the air when John Kennedy took over as president. And he, or his people, continued those programs. But uh, uh, were, he was persuaded by Alan Dulles in a famous walk in the garden to uh, sign off on on the effort to land the 1,500 or so uh, Cuban emigres, uh, anti-Castro people, whom they were training in 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 places like uh, like uh, Nicaragua and Guatemala and, and and Costa Rica, all around Central America, to invade uh, the Cuban mainland and take the, take the place over. Now there were about 1,500 of them at that time. Castro had an army of about 200,000, which was increasingly well trained by Soviet advisers. So obviously that that plan was insane on the face of it. Um, what? Eisenhower apparently considered doing was landing a certain number of Cubans in inaccessible uh, parts of the island and developing a guerrilla movement, much like Castro's own movement. Right. But but, but for whatever reason, Kennedy uh, felt that was ill-advised, and uh, apparently there was a lot of confusion at the planning stage, and ultimately they landed at the Bay of Pigs, which was a terrible place. It was very accessible to to Castro's military in that uh, uh, the it had coral reefs which scraped out the bottom of the landing craft and it was very uh, a, a very unlikely place to to stage an invasion furthermore the uh, despite the fact that 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 the cia's own analytic side had determined that castro had very solid support among the citizenry they were very excited about the prospect of of of, of going beyond the batista regime and beginning to uh, assume some control of their own society batista was a an extreme right-wing ruler who played into the hands of American gangsters and gamblers and other people like that. Right, right. Yeah, a very questionable leader in any case. Uh, without understanding that, that, that Castro was, was, at that time, certainly not now, but at that time, had the universal support of the Cuban people, right. we insisted on thinking that if we landed some troops, some, some anti-Castro uh, Cubans, which, which, who came from all across the political spectrum, that the Cuban people would rise up against Castro. That did not happen, and these people were either slaughtered or taken prisoner at the Bay of Pigs. Well,
0: well what was Alan Dulles thinking, though, really? I mean, didn't, didn't he get this? I mean, uh, that's what I don't understand. I mean,
2: Alan, Alan uh, was the sort of fellow who uh, feasted on dreams, I think. And, uh, and, and Eisenhower recognized this, so that's why he didn't let him do what he wanted to do in Hungary. Hmm. But uh, Kennedy was a very experienced leader on the national level, and he had inexperienced people around him, and he made what he himself would quickly regard as a terrible, almost administration-destroying mistake.
0: Do you think that that was anything to do with the mob and, and Bobby Kennedy? I mean, I, I, you always hear these rumors, you know, that that it was really the mob that wanted to get rid of Castro so they can get back in there and have their gambling?
2: I think there's no doubt the mob was very eager to get in there, and were doing everything possible. You know, Meyer Lansky and those people who owned the, you know, the uh, uh, casino and the Hotel Nacional, which was very important to their economic empire. A lot of people in the mob and— and other people lost a hell of a lot of money. Joe Kennedy had interests in 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 Cuba. He he uh, uh, he and Morton Downey owned the Coca Cola concession throughout the island. So there were a lot of com- I've I've discovered all this stuff in the course of working on Bobby and Edgar. So there were a lot of complicated motives at work in the Kennedy administration when they okayed the uh, uh, Bay of Pigs, and it was a colossal error and almost brought them down.
0: So so when Kennedy pulled back, you know, how did the agency respond and and do you think that had anything to do with his assassination?
2: Well, again, that's something I've been looking at a lot more closely with this book than I did the the old boys. Right. Um I think there were a lot of you know, obviously people all across the board were were disappointed. Cubans of every stripe felt that he 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 he'd let them down. He hadn't allowed sufficient air cover. He hadn't destroyed the trainers with which uh, the Bay of Pigs you know the pilots of which strafed the bay of pigs and and and, and it. i don't think that that would have made a lot of difference i think they were so outmanned that if it had come to a you know open confrontation between the uh, uh, castro's forces and the and the uh uh invaders i don't think they would have had much of a chance but uh, th- there was always a tendency to blame kennedy for this to say that he that he ran out at the critical moment the fact is that he you know he he was jack kennedy was a very sick man right. and 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 his health became a factor sometimes especially in periods of crisis this was concealed from the american public but the extent of this will be again will be very carefully spelled out in bobby and edgar so that was a factor that was something that people had to think a little bit about uh... The, the cia was terribly disappointed that more radical cubans uh... uh... were murderously angry at at kennedy because they felt he'd abandoned them people in the cia who worked with them like david atley phillips and others uh, retained a, I knew knew Phillips, and he, he retained a, a resentment of the Kennedy administration till the day he died, huh. over having let down the people that he'd been training and making promises to. So that was all, all smoldering. And uh, and and uh, um, as for the assassination of Jack Kennedy, I think that's a very complicated business. But in my, in my opinion, Bobby Kennedy's uh, pr- prosecution of some of the senior mobsters, a number of whom I, I. This is something that my book will deal with, uh, were acquaintances and sometimes associates of his father. Um, Bobby's determination to to bring the syndicate down undoubtedly played a big part in the train of events which led to the assassination of his brother.
0: Hmm. It, it, that's
2: a complicated subject. But, right, but, right, because uh, everybody
0: wants to know what happened. Then. I mean, still, there's so much secret I think, stuff. I think yeah. Bobby
2: and Edgar, because I got at the, at the secret FBI files on these things. I can tell you that there's a lot more to it than people realize, and my new book will will, will spell that out.
0: So when is Bobby and Edgar coming out? <laughs> well, it's
2: just it's up for auction in New York now. We have a number of bidders, and we hope that it'll be about a year.
0: Wow, you're going to have to come back on when you have that one ready. Cause I'll, be, I'll, I'll yeah. be ready,
2: but, this, but it, you're it carries that, a lot of these questions out, you know, in the direction that you want to go with them.
0: Right. It sounds uh, like a this is a teaser.
2: <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Teasing away.
0: Yeah. Let me go back a little bit. Um, you you talk about how the CIA proposed to assassinate Stalin. That's you know what was happening at that time.
2: Well, yeah, I don't think that that idea ever got very far. I, that was something that was sort of tossed around in in, in uh, committee meetings and so forth. But it tells you how crazy these guys were, because Stalin yeah. no was probably the best protected person in the world, in and they didn't have a lot of assets in, in Moscow. They, the problem that they had was that they occasionally they came up with somebody who, who usually through British connections. Or a disgruntled walk- in who came into the embassy but but they they were in no position to even think about those things, and that sort of thing went by the board. however, they did have the early c i a did have an assassination branch which was overseen by a very experienced paramilitary type named boris pash who who uh according to the uh archives i've seen never actually was able to do anybody in. However, they, the CIA did set the stage for the death of people like Patrice Lumumba in, 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 in Africa and so forth. So what they would do, that the tendency has been is to kind of create a situation where the natives or his friends or somebody in the vicinity of some leader they didn't like uh, uh, polished him off. But they, they definitely were moving the, the stage sets around.
0: Wow. So, you know, I mean, if there were murderers, which obviously they were, they hired murderers. That's why I wondered about Kennedy, if that was, uh, you know, something that was uh, set up with the CIA as well. Well, I
2: I, I, I mean, I've thought about this and looked at this pretty carefully. Yeah. And I certainly don't think that the senior figures in the CIA, you know, the the people who are at at, at, uh, decision-making levels, knew about or would have countenanced in any way the assassination of Jack Kennedy. And I think the same is certainly true of the FBI. They had many reasons to cover up uh, details of the uh, Oswald situation. Right. But uh, in in both organizations had uh, been in touch with Oswald and had uh, used him as an informant and all in various other capacities. And and that's why the Warren Commission was such a total cover-up.
0: Talk a little bit about that. That was interesting.
2: Well, again, that sort of goes beyond this book, but the the yeah. Warren. The Warren that, but I, it's, it's something I deal with in great detail in, in, in Bobby and Edgar. Um, the old boys though, suggest the large outlines of these things.
0: Well, didn't you didn't you say that um, Alan Dulles um, was actually a member of the Warren Commission?
2: He was a member of the Warren yeah, Commission. That's yeah, that's so
0: weird. Everybody thought he was an idiot and crazy, but they put him on the Warren Commission.
2: Well, you know, Kennedy had had fired him, you know, uh, mm-hmm. but but uh, Dallas it was it was regarded as as, as valuable to have uh, somebody in there to kind of look after the CIA's interests. Warren uh, Dulles was retired by that point. He'd he'd been th- he'd been thrown out in the in the uh, fall of 1961, so he was uh, about three years out of out of office. But uh, he was malleable. They knew they could they could use him to uh, protect the official interests of people. who There were a lot of elements of the assassination of Kennedy, which were, as I suggest, extremely embarrassing to people at the top of the power structure. And so they put in uh, the, the whole Warren Commission was full of people whose reputations were supposedly going to be used to justify. You know, uh, Gerald Ford was a member, and he was in the pocket of J. Edgar Hoover for various reasons, some Official and some personal that I that I deal with in Bobby and Edgar.
0: Wow! Oh, the intrigue, the lives we, the 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 lives that we live and the weaves that we, you know, the webs that we weave. <laughs> Crazy, <laughs> right. I'm telling you.
2: The, the warps that we woof.
0: Yeah. yeah. Talk a little bit about the Iran controversy, controversy with uh, President Vice President Bush.
2: Well, you know, Iran-Contra was an interesting thing to me. I mean, it seems to me that if we were strict legalists, we would have impeached Reagan over that whole thing. Because the the, uh, um, the so-called Bolan Amendments had been passed at that point, which specifically denied the government uh, the right to interfere in any way in the developing problems in Central America, and Nicaragua particularly, very specifically and instead of obeying the law the, the 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 white house uh Oliver North was the fall guy for that but the CIA under Bill Casey was very involved um went ahead and and, and organized a uh, an army the contra army to put down the uh, sandinistas and and, and furthermore uh, this whole thing led to this uh, attempt to you know manipulate through Iran and so forth to uh, get weapons and so forth and money back and forth but it was a totally illegal thing. Oliver North was the guy that, that took the fall for it as much as anybody. But there, there, there were a lot of people in the government, up to and including the vice president, who were involved. And the worst part of it, in my opinion, was that in order to convince some of these contra leaders to fight for us or appear to fight for us, we agreed, because uh, a lot of them were in the drug business, to bring drugs into this country, and some of them in government airplanes. Oh, my goodness. And land them in Florida and in Arkansas. And, and, and then send guns down for them to fight the war that we, which was against the law for us to be fighting. So it was a, a very nasty imbroglio. Wow.
0: Well, what, what about, tell us a little bit about what with the CIA and the Operation De- you know, Desert Storm.
2: Well, I, the, 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 the fault of, of the CIA, the, what, what they've been faulted for in Desert Storm is not so much what they did, but what they didn't do. I mean by that point, the CIA was relatively ineffective. Casey had died of a, of a, of a brain cancer, and uh there had been a series of of, of agreeable but not particularly effective directors and uh, uh We did not have good penetration of of Iraq. We did not then, nor have we since so we didn 't know what was going on in, in in baghdad and so the CIA was very often lumbered for for not having provided the kind of information uh... it's typical of how poorly informed we were that when saddam hussein went to the american ambassador april glaspie and said the kuwaitis are slant drilling into our into our oil on the kuwaiti border have you got any problem if we use military means to push them back april said go ahead do what you want (laughs) and and then uh... we overreacted and 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 went to war over this issue leading to a situation which ultimately Produced the current war in which we have find ourselves all bogged down, and and, and have destroyed the one wall that we had against uh, a Shiite expansion in Iran. So, a situation we brought it brought on through a, a misguided CIA operation in 1953. So, wow. a lot of these things have bad long term consequences.
0: Right now, the another one was in Afghanistan with Osama bin Laden, right? Didn't this, didn't the CIA kind of deal uh, on a friendly basis with Osama bin Laden talk about that
2: well originally uh when 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 we uh, in 79 we init, 78 or 79 we initiated a program to, to try to get the russians out of afghanistan they had just come in because they felt that afghanistan was being infiltrated by western elements so we uh got into league with the mujahideen the the uh, local uh guerrilla commanders who also in 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 Afghanistan, who also hated the Russians, we had sent peop, very astute CIA types like Milt Bearden to run that thing. Uh, he does a good job describing the whole thing in his book. Um, the problem was that in order to activate these people, we had to g- sign on with a lot of people who were either growing heroin or involved in a kind of, of 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 wild-eyed Islamic jihad movement, uh, starting with uh, Osama bin Laden, who worked with us or collaborated with us in the efforts to throw the Russians out. Once the Russians had been thrown out, the Islamic fanatics got all worked up and decided that it was time to throw all foreign elements out of the Middle East. And that led directly to the predicament we're in at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean... (laughs) so the the CIA has uh really messed us up in a lot of ways. How about with well, them well
2: the CIA does these things on the advice and consent of the President of the United States. It's unfair to blame these often uh very astute and public spirited professional intelligence officers for mistakes that are made in other parts of the government and that's I think the CIA has caught a lot of flack It shouldn't have it was underfunded for years after the end of the Cold War. They, you know they cut twenty percent at the same time that Osama bin Laden was rising as a threat. They cut twenty percent out of the CIA budget, most of which came out of the so called human or human intelligence side of the CIA which is exactly what we needed the most spies in 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 this part of the world and and uh, uh we cut back to a total of eleven hundred CIA operatives around the world out of a total of sixteen thousand people in the CIA in other words. It, the, 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 uh, wow. it got to be a kind of a headquarters-heavy operation without very good intelligence coming in. At the same time, our the, the other intelligence services on which we depended for years for for a lot of that on-the-ground intelligence, the Israelis, the Brits, the Germans had pretty much dried up. So we were we were flying blind. Was, wow. We had very bad leadership, in my opinion, uh, uh, from from a series of presidents on the intelligence. I think things uh, got more serious uh, under Bill Casey, but again, they led us into things like the war in Nicaragua, which may or may not have been a good idea.
0: So, is there much oversight in Congress over the CIA, or is it just basically it's the president and the CIA does their own commensurating?
2: Well, it's hard. You know, I, I just last week I was in Aspen and I, I, I was in a conference with Jane Harmon, who uh, you know, the congresswoman who was basically along uh, along with Porter Goss ran this the select committee on intelligence in the C, uh, in, in in the house of representatives that overlooks and, and 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 supposedly coordinates all the congress and the cia and my feeling was she's a very bright woman very astute very hard working a whole lot of things obviously went have been going down on her watch that uh, she was uh, uh, only marginally aware of oh. you know the problem is the cia concealed stuff from the Congress, at the request of the president, and the president changes, and they're, and there, you know, there's confusion. There, the, the the gears don't mesh too well.
0: Huh. So, so, who are the people who make up the CIA right now, and and how has it really been shaped by the previous attitudes?
2: Well, the CIA has had a, has had, a, you know, it, it periodically it undergoes some very rough uh, treatment. It it uh, um, it had a series of. Uh, 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 DCIs, you know the uh, uh, people in charge of the agency, directors. Uh, there was a sort of revolving door operation all through the Clinton years. Uh, then, then uh, George Tenet came in. Tenet had been a, a, a sort of a functionary or a bureaucrat in in this in the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, and uh, Clinton put him in, and he he was a kind of a uh, 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 sort of a rubber man you know he could things bounced off him he he had an ag- agreeable sort of open uh personality uh he, he was retained by bush and uh, uh really planned the in effect the intelligence side of the war on afghan in in afghanistan which was really quite successful to you know to to corner and drive out osama bin Laden and and, and destroy the Taliban. That basically, uh, if we'd followed up effectively on it, would have won our, one of our few intelligence successes the last 50 years or so. Um, he wound up getting into a fight with Rumsfeld, who really felt the CIA had too many paramilitary functions that should have been part of the Department of Defense. And in the end, he got bounced out and replaced by Porter Goss, who was so political that he all but destroyed the top three layers of the CIA, both on the analytic and on the operations side and uh, now we have a uh, a uh, uh, something uh, that's sort of um uh, it's something called the director of national intelligence a new layer of co- of of bureaucracy that that is uh above all the other layers the FBI the uh, CIA and uh, and in uh, the NSA all the other different intelligence functions and the CIA is now which had been the kingpin in the whole operation was now just one of a lot of organizations that uh Report to the director of national intelligence, John well, Negro Ponte, at this point.
0: Right. And his- wasn't that – wasn't the intent of this new layer to kind of help to make sure that everybody was communicating because they said that there was – you know, the head didn't know the tail. The FBI was not communicating well with the CIA and the CIA yeah. with the NSA, and yeah. that's why they didn't know, even though – the FBI people in the FBI were, were saying, "Hey, wait a minute, arrest these people." You know, the nine eleven terrorists that the head didn't know the tail because there wasn't any oversight of of communication. Everybody had their turf wars.
2: Yeah, this is it's, it. Was very complicated, and it's even more complicated now. You have a counterterrorism center in the CIA. You have another counterterrorism center uh, in this new office of of the director of national intelligence. Who gets what? Uh, uh, my friends in the CIA tell me that that the director of national intelligence is robbing all the analytic people out of the CIA, so they won't be able to do much much analysis there anymore. Huh. Um, the the uh, Department of Defense would like to get uh, complete control of the paramilitary stuff. You know the the uh, um, special forces types that uh, go into countries and and reconnoiter and and. You know, do do different these teams of people that do do all that sometimes very effectively. So it hasn't really shaken out yet. Meanwhile, uh, Porter Goss had had apparently done so much damage to the professional level, top professional levels of the of the CIA that he got bounced out by Bush abruptly after about a year, and was replaced by Michael Hayden, who had been the head of the National Security Agency, the people, the spy in the sky people. So. You know, the the place is bleeding badly, and Hmm. uh, uh, the hope is that they can get their act together. But meanwhile, the war in in Iraq is going very badly. Everybody's blaming everybody else for that.
0: Right. And
2: uh, I, I think it's a tough time to be a professional intelligence officer.
0: Really, I just want to introduce you again. We're speaking with Burton Hirsch, who happens to be the wonderful author, great researcher about the CIA. We're talking about his previous book that he's updated, The Old Boys, The American Elite and the Origins of the CIA. He told us very soon we're going to get to hear about uh, Bobby and Edgar, a new uh, book that he is going to be uh, publishing real soon. Um Let's let me ask you something. I, I love this statement that you said in your book. You said, um, with regard to the CIA, uh, kind of a conclusionary thing to say: too often secrecy, guaranteed impunity, and impunity irresponsibility. How is that the same or different today?
2: Well, I think I think we have a different kind of situation. I mean, in, in, in Alan Dulles's day, you know, all these socialites and the rest who who were all around him. Not, and not some of them very able people you know like Lindsay and others who were very sk- you know skilled uh, professionals but uh, a lot of them were just so you know, friends of friends you know other guys in the law firm people who got bored with uh Wall Street um you don't have those people around anymore you, you the people who are in intelligence who make a career in places like the CIA tend to be very able adroit skilled often very knowledgeable people with with broad academic as well as, as, as a professional background. And um, uh, these people, one of the problems that you had, for example, in the CIA was that a lot of people felt that the information was being cooked on Iraq, people at very high levels, people who were in charge of the Osama bin Laden file or were in charge of, of, of the Near East file and they were leaking information to the press indicating that this administration didn't know what it was doing. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just Valerie Flam. There were a lot of people in professional intelligence who were trying to get the word out there that we were making a terrible mistake doing what we were doing in Iraq, especially since these threats that we, we insisted on uh, forcing the intelligence people to attest to simply didn't exist. Uh, so the, well, you have to respect these people for the effort they made to get the truth out. You never would have had that happen in the Allen Dulles era. So so my feeling is that some of that comment that that uh, people cover for each other and, and suppress the truth, I think that's less true because you have a much more professionalized intelligence community.
0: So, so how do we move forward having secrecy for what we need to for terrorism and privacy for the CIA and yet also have this kind of transparency so we don't have all this illegal stuff going on and so we can proceed to deal with the international terrorism
2: well that's a very good question and the the, the heart of it is that we can't have people concealing information for political reasons because it serves their political agendas we've got to make sure that the that that we have a, a, an effective censorship system whereby truly important information that, that would be a benefit to the potential enemies of the United States is maintained in, 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 in tight security. But that that information that people need in order to make intelligent political decisions and which is not of itself classified, for example, the extent to which uh, an enemy has weapons of mass destruction, is out there. Is, is available so that the politicians and the people can make up their minds the problem is there's been a lot of cherry-picking and there's been a lot of selective release of information and a lot of finger pointing when uh, unwelcome but important information got out there and this this administration which is has, has suppressed has, has reclassified the you know, millions of documents which were out there in the public province in effect to rejigger history uh, uh, will ultimately have to stand accountable for some of these practices.
0: You know, Bert, it makes sense what you're saying, but how do we do that? I mean, you know, we we say, well, on one hand, we have to have some, you know, secrecy for real, you know, intelligence purposes to protect Americans. And then, on the other hand, we need to make sure that they're they're not going to get away with the illegal acts right and, and it,
2: it's a complex security is a complicated issue, but you know we we've always we've always uh started with this question of sources and methods protecting our sources, protecting the way in which we got information uh we really Beyond that, where it's a where it's a, you know a, a large matter of public import, I think as much information should be out there as possible, so that that we can make intelligent decisions and not rush into wars or rush into calamities because we're misinformed or have 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 misinformed ourselves or groups in the government have misinformed the rest of us for largely political reasons, self-serving reasons. These are distinctions that. Were made during the Second World War when we had a very effective classification system, and nevertheless, it all got out that needed to get out, right and, and can be made now as long as the po- as the political forces are not preoccupied with serving their own agendas and not the national agenda.
0: But we've seen, at least I've seen, and I'm sure you have too, we've seen right now um, during this time of terrorism in this administration that a lot has been suppressed. Whether well, we're talking about the FISA court. You know, we need to have some oversight where someone at least is deciding whether something really does fit into a category, or we just want to keep it secret.
2: Fine, but we had the point is the case of Pfizer, for example. We had, we had a very effective and carefully drawn set of laws, right. which would have allowed uh, the suppression of information or the release of information as the appropriate court allowed. Right. And this administration chose not to use that. That apparatus
3: right that's right. the
2: problem you can't no matter what laws you have if if if, if people in power choose not to use uh, intelligently drawn and, and well drawn uh, legislation and guide themselves by it uh, we 're all helpless
0: right, and in the name of terrorism we 're going to do yes. suppression, and i think, yeah. I think that's what you know really frightens me in terms of, of of knowing this information. We know that there has to be some secrecy. So how do you see um, the the evolution of the CIA now? What what can we expect from it in the future based on what's been happening with the different layers now? Because we've only got a few minutes left.
2: Well, the CIA has been in many ways a very effective organization. I mean, it's it, 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 under Tenet, who was a little bit ham-handed at times. but <clears throat> They caught uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. They caught Nashiri. They caught Hambali. They basically... Um, uh, Stripped out the whole second level of Al Qaeda, so they. Uh, you have to say that they were doing their job and doing it pretty well. I think you have to be very careful not to destroy an organization, and it's you know, and and it's 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 database and it's it's uh, thousands of skilled professionals, in the hope that you might be able to put together another organization um, above or below these people, which might or might not do a better job. I think we, we're in real danger of of institutional destruction here, where we'll have. We'll, you know, we'll be flying blind for a long time, having driven everybody who's any good out of the intelligence community, and filling it with professional hacks and people who don't know what they're doing. I think that's that's been a chronic danger for many years. I think we should, the CIA, in my opinion, ought to be, have a, a if I were redesigning things, I would put the CIA somewhere between Congress and the president. It's functioned too many times as the president's private army, been too available to, Uh, people with special interests within the the, uh, executive branch who didn't know quite what they were doing but wanted to get something accomplished for their own purposes, sometimes for, uh, you know, purely commercial reasons. I think we have to begin to treat it a little bit the way that we, you know, we treat the Federal Reserve Board or other organizations, which have a kind of uh, independent status. Then we'll begin to get information that's accurate and it can't be easily denied or suppressed simply because it doesn't, you know, please the agenda of the, of the uh, rulers of the moment.
0: So you think that they should have to report to Congress, um, basically that there should be a congressional committee that has the oversight between, uh, that meets with the president? Is that what you, help me understand? Well, there is.
2: You see, we have the select committees in right. both the House and the Senate. But, but, uh, uh, but in order for them to do much of anything, anything substantial, they have to get what's called a presidential finding. The president has to agree to. Uh, uh, go ahead and, and you know, launch a, an invasion of some principality somewhere or whatever, you know. Right, right. Um, uh, the point is that it seems to me that, that uh, both the information and the initiatives ought to have to be cleared, uh, not just in a timely manner, which is what the, the current legislation reads, but at inception with both uh, a select committee from the Congress and from the president. The fact is the Congress, uh, although there are constant charges that, that that if you tell a congressman anything, they'll leak it. The fact is the White House has been a, uh, <laughs> ten times the leaker that the Congress ever was of, of vital information if it served its political purposes for the moment. So it seems to me that the, this information gathering and clearing operation ought to, have, ought to have a status not immediately subservient to the president as it does now because right. it, it, none of this stuff – goes through the uh, the uh, uh, various departments uh, uh, none of the cia material does the other the other things go through department of defense and so many other intelligence gathering things but it should all it should function in my opinion as a as, a, as an independent body with the close ties to these two parts of, of the government great that would well, be my 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 hope
0: well we're going to give you a website where people can purchase your books at treefarmbooks.com and we're going to be looking for the next book Bobby and Edgar, that sounds really good it talks about a lot of uh, intri- intrigue as well We and we thank you so much Burton, we hope that uh, you'll come back after your new book is out
2: oh thank you Mary, and don't, don't forget The Nature of the Beast then,
0: oh yes, and I'm sorry, The Nature of the Beast is your novel about a CIA agent, it's, it's fascinating
2: and, and these books can be gotten at, at a, through any bookstore they can be gotten uh, on Amazon They're freely available.
0: Okay, and treefarmbooks.com as well.
2: Of course. So
0: thank you. Um, We've been speaking with Burton Hirsch, who happens to be a a wonderful author and a researcher on the CIA and has really given us a tremendous amount of insight into what's been happening um, with the CIA and what we should be expecting from them and from how Congress and the president should be working. You've been listening to Privacy Piracy with me, Mari Frank, and my engineer, Lloyd Beauchat. Thank you, Lloyd. To learn more about our future guests, go to KUCI.org slash privacy There you can also listen to previous interviews, see our previous guests, and download the podcast and subscribe. Join us next week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here at KUCI.org, 88.9 FM in Irvine, and KUCI.org on the net. Thanks.